The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony, to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, and we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. John bore witness to him and cried, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, for he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This evening we are continuing the festival of Christ's nativity, a festival in which we, having had our hearts enlightened by the light that has come into the world, respond with awe and worship to the mystery and humility of his incarnation. I don't know if you're anything like me, but I think this enlightenment, this contemplation on our part, sadly is often haphazard for us because we can't cordon ourselves off from the culture in which we live, and we live in a world that has already moved past Christmas, and in the darkness of renewed family pain or loneliness, addiction, stress, anxiety, the world now turns to the yearly charade of pulling up our bootstraps and making resolutions to become better people. Anybody? Want to share your list? No? I had a friend once who told me his resolution was to give up resolutions. He also gave up telling anyone what he was giving up for Lent, for Lent. So I think, he's, I think he's figured it out. I mean, you know what it's like, right? For the next few weeks, at least, the gyms will be quite a bit fuller, the bars and donut shops quite a bit emptier, and then by February, we'll all just go back to normal. Now, resolutions aren't bad. And they're not doomed to failure. In fact, those of you that have come to confession might recall that one of the things that you pray as we dialogue in that rite is, I resolve not to sin again. 
The falsehood isn't with the premise that we as human beings made in God's image have freedom of choice. No, Satan gets much closer to the truth than that, and so doing, the destruction that he causes is even greater. So if you'll allow me a little creative license, if I could put a spin on our gospel lesson this evening, it would be that the devil became a liar and dwelt among us. And from his emptiness, we have received need upon need. Ever since we have all moved east of Eden, we've all been faced with the sin of our first parents. The sin to choose not God. And one of the ways that the lie of the devil works is to convince us that the choices that we're making are really the choices, when in actuality, he mostly has us choosing between ourself and ourself. We're not actually making the choice. So I've been watching this show on uh, Netflix called Ozark. It's really dark. This is not a recommendation, okay? The story is about this seemingly upstanding, normal, upper-middle-class family, but spoiler alert, they launder money for a cartel. And by the time we catch up with them, things have already gone completely sideways, and they're scrambling to regain the trust of their bosses, trying to prove their loyalty in order to save their own lives. Eventually, we get a little bit of an origin story, how a normal, nice accountant began committing massive felony for ruthless people. But throughout the show, we see these characters, mostly in this husband and wife team, making choice after choice. And throughout the show, Marty, the main character, the launderer, he justifies what is happening around him by repeating the idea that everybody has a choice. And whatever happens to those people out there, it's because they chose to do whatever it was, and so X, Y, Z happened. Everybody has a choice. There's this really chilling scene when his wife, Wendy, is trying to talk her way out of another jam. And she says, that's the thing that no one tells you about evil. They make it seem like there are two clearly marked paths with flashing signs pointing out each way. Sin, redemption. I mean, they tell you Adam and Eve knew that they could eat from every single tree in that garden except one. But the truth is, evil comes when the righteous path is so hidden. It just looks like there's only one way out. The truth is, Adam and Eve probably grabbed that apple because they were starving, and it was the first tree they saw. Not that that's any excuse. Now, I'm unclear in my own mind as to whether Wendy is lying, perhaps even to herself, or if the writers of this show have themselves bought into this sort of half-truth Christianity that is just so destructive, because Wendy could not be more wrong. I mean, she's right that often the metaphor that's used is one of two paths. As the Didache, the teaching of the disciples, says, a path, there's a path that leads to life and a path that leads to death. The problem is we keep confusing what the choices really are, and the choice always ever has been a choice between God and not God. And the choice of not God will always lead to death and destruction because to choose not God is to choose nothingness. It's to choose non-existence. It's to choose emptiness. 
For Wendy, evil came not when the righteous path was so hidden it looked like there was only one way out. Evil came when she chose greed and self rather than virtue over and over and over and over again. But even more important is her wrong view of what happened in the garden. And it's a lie, I think, that we've all been swimming in for so long we don't recognize it until someone says something so obviously wrong that we sort of perk up. Adam and Eve probably grabbed that apple because they were starving. When you put it that way, you know it's ludicrous. That's just wrong. But we act like we're starving people all the time. I say again, the devil came among us, and from his emptiness we have received need upon need. The story that the devil tells about the world and our place in it is, to put it another way, anti-Christ, completely. It is rooted in a lie that is designed to get us to covet what our neighbors have, to look with indifference or indignance at the life we have been given. And so, in our scarcity and greed and anxiety, we begin to misuse the people around us. We misuse the environment around us and even our own abilities and gifts in an attempt to turn not God into a God of our own making. As David Fagerberg so aptly put it, the objects of the world are not false for being unclean. The objects of the world only become false when we ascribe to them a meaning under whose weight they crack. Good things have evil effects when we use them to foster self-love. They will break because no finite thing was meant to bear our infinite desire. Only the infinite one can satisfy a desire that is infinite. This is the liturgical state, knowing the world the way the world was meant to be known. Not placing our infant desire on things that cannot bear that weight. But do you see? The Christian response to Satan's lie is not to disown the world and all material life as somehow evil. That would still be to grant him the premise of his lie. No, the Christian story of the world, the gospel, if you want to put it that way, is summed up so beautifully in John chapter 1, verses 14 and 16. And the word became flesh and lived, literally tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That is the Christian story of the world. We have to remember God isn't a thing in the world competing with other things. Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the word and wisdom through whom the entire universe was spoken into existence. A universe that we, even in all of our scientific hubris, still know next to nothing about. It is so rich, so expansive, so beyond our comprehension. And yet he who is wider than the heavens has from his fullness given to you grace upon grace, given to you the gift of adoption into the very family of God. As St. Paul tells the church at Corinth, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Yesterday I reread C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. 
If you haven't read it, the, the basic conceit of the story is that there's this busload of people that have left the gray city, which is, spoiler, hell, okay? And they're transported up to the outer banks of heaven. And while they're there, they find heaven to be extremely painful. The little blades of grass, the stems of the flowers are harder than diamond compared to their ghost-like bodies. And throughout, Lewis does what he does best. He masterfully shows us the variations of the human condition as they are all rooted in this same lie of Satan that is designed to get us to think our choices are between self and self rather than God and not God. The citizens of the gray city are met by friends and family that they'd known on earth who have been given life immortal in Christ. And these saints draw near. They, they make this journey away from, you know, the center of heaven to come and, and try to get past the defensiveness of their visitors so that they might experience joy and, and, and realize that they have been caught in a lie and desire to stay. And it rarely works. At one point, the narrator is met by his hero, who happens to be Lewis's hero, author and preacher George MacDonald. And as they're talking, the narrator is distracted by a particularly striking scene. I guess I'm just doing long quotes these days. I'm sorry. But I can't figure out where to cut this off. It's too good. Here we go. Here's, here's a passage from The Great Divorce. First came bright spirits, not the spirits of men, who danced and scattered flowers. Then on the left and right at each side of the forest avenue came youthful shapes, boys upon one hand and girls upon the other. If I could remember their singing and write down the notes, no man who read that score would ever grow sick or old. Between them went musicians, and after these, a lady in whose honor all this was being done. I cannot now remember whether she was naked or clothed, if she were naked, then it must have been the almost visible penumbra of her courtesy and joy, which produces in my memory the illusion of a great and shining train that followed her across the happy grass. If she were clothed, then the illusion of nakedness is doubtless due to the clarity with which her inmost spirit shone through the clothes. For clothes in that country are not a disguise. The spiritual body lives along each thread and turns them into living organs. A robe or a crown is there as much one of the wearer's features as a lip or an eye. But I have forgotten, and only partly do I remember the unbearable beauty of her face. Is it? Is that? I whispered to my guide. Not at all, said he. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green but she seems to be, well, a person of particular importance? Aye, she's one of the great ones. You've heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And who are these gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. MacDonald replies, haven't you read your Milton? A thousand liveried angels lackey her. And who are all these young men and women on each side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that she met became her son. 
even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on her parents? No. There are those who steal other people's children, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Few men looked on her without becoming, in a certain fashion, her lovers, but it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. And how, but, hello, what are all these animals? A cat, two cats, dozens of cats, and all these dogs, why I can't count them, and the birds and the horses. They are her beasts. Did she keep a sort of zoo? I mean, this is a bit too much. Every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her they became themselves, and now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. And the narrator says, I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said. It is like when you throw a stone into a pool and the concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come to its full strength. But already there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint such as yonder lady to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. The abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. You don't have to believe the lie of the devil. There is no scarcity. The love of God just goes on and on and on. His beauty and his glory are infinite. Just jump in. As we continue to celebrate Christmas and as we prepare for a new calendar year, along with St. Paul, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power? God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and opinion and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.